Welcome to the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. In many places in the world, humans are surrounded by network computational devices, computers of all shapes and sizes connected to the internet. As opposed to a laptop or desktop computer, most of these devices fall into the category of embedded computing or embedded systems. The first embedded system was developed in the 1960s for NASA's Apollo program to collect real-time flight data. But they were first widely used in missile guidance systems. Flash forward 60 years, they are in our homes, in our pockets, in schools, collecting data about how and when we move and controlling traffic lights. Of particular concern today is how children and adolescents interact with and are affected by these devices, especially phones and tablets. Many questions arise for parents, caregivers, and educators. How much screen time should my child have? Should my students have? How do we know what's safe and what isn't on the internet? Dr. Devorah Heitner is an educator and researcher who explores these questions and many more. As founder of Raising Digital Natives, she advises schools, parents, and organizations on how best to mentor young people as they navigate an increasingly complex computational world. In this episode, we talk with Devorah about all of this, about new technologies like deepfakes, and what it means if each of us and our children are amassing a digital permanent record. Hey, Devorah, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. So, you know, I like to start sometimes by delving into people's background. And one of the things when I was doing research about you for this interview, I noticed that you have a Bachelor of Fine Arts um, from the School of the Art Institute in Film and Video, and I was fascinated by that. So I was just wondering, what kind of work were you making before and during and after this program? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I studied at the Art Institute in the early 90s. And so it was like a really exciting experimental time for video art and experimental kind of feminist documentary. So mm-hmm. I made personal experimental work. And there was this kind of feeling that, you know, our own stories are political and interesting. And I learned to do research and really learned all the different aspects of making, you know, a very small film. I mean, it wasn't sort of Hollywood style production, but I learned to edit on an Avid. I, we mm-hmm. used to book those machines and sleep sleep in, in, in the studio to have access to them. It was a really fun time. And I think it was good preparation for the doctoral work because it was very independent and very much self-directed, which is helpful when you're working on a dissertation. And so were you making, because there was a little bit of time between your undergrad and your, you, when you started, you know, doing your PhD and when you finished your PhD was, were you doing, working as an artist during that time? No, I worked in museums. I worked at the MCA. I worked at the Spurtis Museum. I taught kids about the Holocaust. Um, what else did I do? I worked at a design firm called eLab. Mm-hmm. So I did a bunch of things in that five-year period and then went back to graduate school. And I, I had been a very young undergrad. I went to college initially when I was 16, so I graduated at 20. Oh, wow. So I think I really needed that time. I can't even imagine going into a doctoral program at 20. Yeah. Even 25, which is what I did, was really pretty young in some ways. And so your PhD ended up from Northwestern ended up being in media technology and society. So what were kind of what were you researching during that time and what were you focusing on? Well, um, I ended up doing my master's on kids and technology and writing about the anti-racist work that Sesame Street was doing 
in the late 60s coming out of the Office of Education and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, all of which was very new. I mean, public broadcasting was relatively new, and the whole idea of early childhood education as something that every kid should potentially have access to is relatively new. Kids' mm-hmm. television was relatively new. So writing about Sesame Street was really fun. It brought a lot of my interests together in terms of children and experimental production and racial equity. And then out of that came my doctoral dissertation, which was called Black Power TV, which was about black public affairs television programs in Oakland and Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, uh, New York City, Boston. And that became my first book. So I, I followed those interests in, in that direction and really did a lot of um, interviews and archival research uh, with, with makers and spent many years actually on that project. I mean, a few years on the dissertation, then a few more years on the book, uh, really mm-hmm. researching kind of on the road. And it was a very intense time. It was before I became a parent. So I could just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to spend five years researching and not getting paid. And, you know, but it was mm-hmm. great. It was great fun. Um, and Black Power TV came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. Wow. Yeah. So, and I've, I, I've, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that a lot of your work is done around this area of digital citizenship. Um, so I was just wondering what you could, if you could like tell us like what digital citizenship entails, maybe like what it, what it meant when that word first kind of started being used and what it means today to you. Yeah, I think the idea of digital citizenship from an educator perspective or from a mentor or parent perspective is really about participation and what does it mean to have access to participate in a way that's appropriate and thoughtful and impactful, right, where, you know, each of us can use these incredibly powerful tools, whether it's Twitter, whether it's, you know, having a LinkedIn account, whether it's being able to build a website in WordPress or, Mm -hmm. you know, another web builder, these are incredible tools and what are we doing with them and and how does that empower us to participate in society, to connect with other people. So there was just a a great article in my Twitter feed about uh, teenagers with disabilities and how social media is incredibly empowering, you know, for, I mean, again, you know, not to generalize, but that, that the author of that article found that was incredibly empowering for her. And I think we really need, need to look at these digital tools and figure out what, in what ways does this make society better? How can we use these tools to make society better to allow people to connect with one another, allow people to engage, allow people to come up with solutions to problems? Obviously, people do a lot of other things in the digital world that aren't great. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think of digital citizenship as kind of policing kids, right? Keeping kids from doing really dumb things, you know, like, you know, um, don't put your butt on Instagram and that's digital citizenship. And I think that's like the sort of most reductive. I mean, that's sort of like, yeah, don't do stupid things. Of course, it's kind of maybe part of what we hope for from our students and our children. But in a more idealistic way, I think digital citizenship is about using these tools to empower us to make the world better. Right. And so kind of extending what our powers, you know, in a digital domain, um, like on the internet or via any of the app ecosystems, um, so you're also the founder of Raising Digital Natives. What's the mission and work of that organization? So Raising Digital Natives is predominantly speaking and consulting organization. I work with a lot of schools and some companies, speaking to parents, speaking to educators, speaking directly with young people in K-12 and sometimes uh, in higher ed about issues like what does it mean to grow up in public, which I'm working on that more now because I'm working on a project related to reputation 
Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have empathy and bring empathy to your interactions on social media or in gaming or even in email or texting, right? When, mm-hmm. What are the ways we can think about this communication? And then a lot of the consulting work I do is helping schools, for example, come up with a culture around issues like one-to-one devices that really makes sense and supports parents, doesn't you know just let parents figure out maybe everything by experience, but helps with, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we, we can help you, you know, for example, structure your child's device use at home. And we can help you understand some of the things that might be developmentally expected at their age and some other things that might not be great. So a lot of my consulting is also just about asking people questions. I've learned so much from doing focus groups for libraries and schools and talking with students, because a lot of times educators will implement an innovative technology solution in a school, for example, with really high hopes about how it's going to work. And they just, nobody has time to actually ask the students or the teachers or parents how it's going. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work involves asking those questions and bringing the answers in. And often it's not, you know, a lightning bolt of this is completely different than we thought, but there are maybe sometimes small to moderate changes in a technology innovation program in in a school or in a company that if the people in charge know that this is how the experience is going, they can make these changes. So I see that as kind of my role is to hopefully walk away and leave people doing a little better, or in the case of giving parent talks, often just helping parents be less afraid and Mm -hmm. feel more empowered. Like, oh, I, I do know how to help my kid deal with this friendship issue. And just because it's playing out in Fortnite or Snapchat doesn't mean that it's so different than anything that I grew up with. It's still the same set of developmental issues, the same set of social issues. It's just happening in this slightly different format. Yeah, I mean, I think there there's like a level of stress that parents have about what their kids are doing and educators have about what students are doing on the devices. So it sounds like anything you do that mitigates that is like a wonderful gift to those schools that you work with. Uh, one distinction that I think is interesting that I think you're the perfect expert to talk about is I when I'm working with parents or teachers, I often make the distinction between I think that a lot of people, a lot of adults say digital native, and they think that means digital adept. And what I you know, try to express to these parents and teachers that just because they grew up around these network computational devices doesn't mean they have mastery or even sometimes understanding of what the devices can do or, or will do. Um, do you think that's a common misconception? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love um, the, the term digital native is kind of funny because other people would say digitally naive. And I think it's very true that a lot of our kids... They may be really good at, you know, using filters to make their photos look cool or doing other things that are really inventive. And, you know, a six-year-old might be able to, you know, edit a video. And that's a very impressive thing, right? But especially given, you know, again, where I'm coming from, where I was using the Avid and it was a really high level of skill. Now the technology is advanced to the point where a lot of things seem really easy. But that doesn't mean that same six-year-old can comprehend what it would mean to share that widely or whether or not that video is something that should be on YouTube and seen by, you know, potentially anyone in the world, right, or not. And I think that's very important that adults have the judgment and the lived experience to understand context, to understand why something might be hurtful or inappropriate that -hmm. kids just don't have. Uh, So kids might have this technological facility, especially using apps, but maybe we want to work on both the creative side where they're actually creating apps and, and making the apps better and that kind of thing, but also understanding the implications of their their use and their sharing and their connection because there's always another human being on the other end uh, or a number of human beings who are going to experience what you've created and shared and that's where kids may not 
completely get that. I think even some adults struggle to kind of remember that there's other human beings on the other end of the screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that we are all kind of in the experimental, I mean, I wouldn't say guinea pigs because we're doing this to ourselves, but I mean, we're certainly in the the first set of subjects to um, have a smartphone, have a tablet and, you know, use uh, social media. So, I mean, I think we're the we're the uh, sample set, unfortunately. Um, in your book, Screenwise, you I, I was really fascinated that you kind of advocate for mentoring instead of monitoring. What's what's the difference between those two? Well, monitoring is especially tempting for parents who want to put, you know, an app on their kid's device or on their computer, on the network to just track their kid all over and see, you know, where have they visited on the internet? What keystrokes have they put in? Who have they texted? And there may be a role for monitoring in in mentoring, which is really teaching kids to make good independent decisions and to be digital citizens, but it's not a substitute, right? And for some families and some schools, it may not be necessary at all. You may not need to monitor your kid, but your child needs to know that they can come to you. And mentoring is a, a lot more work than mon- monitoring, right? It's easy mm-hmm. to put an app on your kid's device. It's challenging to talk to them about difficult conversations when you may need to switch from text to face to face, when you may need to go see a friend who's posted something on social media that's concerning, right? There are, there are a lot of nuances to mentoring. You know, what's what's a good reason to disconnect from someone on social media or to maybe not share your phone number with someone or those kinds of things, uh, to take down a post that you've posted, to apologize to someone face-to-face for something you've said in a text. These are all things that we as adults have kind of learned to do based on, again, our context and lived experience. And mentoring is the only way we can help our kids benefit from that experience, especially because the devices don't lend themselves as naturally to modeling. They're so personal. Mm -hmm. And there's just a great article in The Atlantic this month about missing the landline and how the landline was such a family unifier. And you know, the landline was mixed, I think, for a lot of people. It kind of could be disruptive and all of that. But certainly it made modeling much easier because it was in a central location in most homes. And you, your children would hear, you know, as children, we heard our parents negotiate getting off the phone or negotiate if they were going to answer a phone that came, a call that came in at a difficult time or an inappropriate time. And now all of those decisions are being made at a very personal level. And so we have to remind ourselves to explicitly model and teach our kids about our communication boundaries and our communication decisions because it's otherwise it's it's public it's 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 or it's not public it's happening in our pocket it's happening with our thumb our kids aren't reading our text the way they were listening that we listen to our parents calls so i think it's really important that we do mentor our kids and and some of mentoring is also asking them questions you know well why do you want this game or what's cool about the new switch versus the Wii U or what do you love about Fortnite or what do you love about Snapchat and then really shutting up and listening to them tell us about their experience I think we can mentor by teaching them but we can also mentor just by listening and having conversations with them about their experience and their priorities and no no there's no app that will do that for you you can't track your kid and find out their their secret hope is you know one specific kind of influence you Mm. know if your kid really wants to be famous on youtube you you may have questions about that but you want to find that out via a conversation not by catching them posting to their channel so switching to kind of a classroom setting i mean i I, so many schools are using things like dino and go guardian to monitor and even control student computers would you say i mean i i know that the example that are the you know the advice you were just giving is for parents, but what does a person do when they have 20 to say 35 kids 
I mean, is there a way to use mentoring in a classroom in a similar way? I think there is, but I also think that schools feel tremendous liability and that's why they sort of use these more, these tools that, you know, are are less subtle, right? Like I might be able to say, oh, my kid can watch this R-rated movie, for example, because I understand the content of this movie won't be Mm -hmm. as upsetting, but this movie features a scene that I know about that I know will be very traumatic for my kid. And so, you know, I have a 10-year-old, it's my choice whether he watches any R-rated movies, but it's a fairly blunt instrument. And I think we all know, like, for the example of the R-rated movies, there's tremendous variation in what will get that rating. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some bias there. And so I think that's a good example of in school, you just would never show a 10-year-old an R-rated movie because you would have an angry set of parents come in and say, that's not okay. You might not even go PG-13, right? You would mm-hmm. really go with the most general, you know, acceptable. And even then, there might be parents who would have content objections to almost anything. Right. So it's really it's really hard to meet the needs of everyone. And I think that's where school is sometimes more limited or... It, you know, I think schools initially with one-to-one were really robustly depending on parents to be familiar with the technology that they were sending home. They were depending on parents to be physically present when their kids were using the tech, which was very unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And so I do think making a school device that you're kind of foisting on a family a little bit more locked down might make more sense than a home device where parents might say, well, you can use this device, but it's not going to be in your room overnight and I'm going to be here to take it away. Uh, whereas if I'm sending it home to thousands of kids in a district, and I don't know, I don't know who does shift work, who leaves their kid with a sibling, um, mm-hmm. who might not, you know, be in a good position to mentor it, you know, um, I don't, I don't think monitoring has no place in mentoring. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm not saying sure. like give your eight year old a smartphone and let them access the entire world with no, you know, and just let them make all their own mistakes. There are some mistakes that are so dangerous and so painful. Um, and have such serious consequences that we want to do anything we can to avoid them. There are other mistakes that are so, I would say, typical and developmental um, that it's likely that your kid will make them and there may be no other way to move forward, right? You know, Mm -hmm. your kid texting people multiple times when they don't hear from them and being impatient is really different than sharing really private information, you know, as an elementary schooler and being vulnerable to an adult from a game that they play, right? I mean, in terms of the potential for harm, the consequences and and whether we are willing to sort of live with the learning experience or whether we want to go with, no, you're just not going to play on an unmoderated server when you're seven mm-hmm. um, I'm not, with strangers because I don't think you as a second grader maybe have the judgment to play with people we don't know. So we are going to build that server for you and your friends and we're, you know, mm-hmm. are you, or you're, you might say to your fifth grader if, if you let them have email that you're only going to give your email address to people we know. Right. And I think those those kinds of sensible limitations make sense. And as kids get older, we can expand their universe when we always need them to know that if something does go wrong, even if they've broken the rules, they're obviously need to feel safe in talking with us, which is the other reason I think we we don't want to scare them. Right. We don't want to tell them, Mm -hmm. you know, if you do this, then you're in big trouble because then they won't talk to us. And there are times where they're going to need that. So I I think schools are between, uh, you know, really difficult place and another really difficult place because, what we have certainly in, you know, in my own district is these very, very locked down iPads that like don't do a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if they really even should come home if, if families are so frustrated with what the limits of what they can do, but they want them to be locked down. I wonder if they should stay at school, but that school should be open later would be a compromise to me that a supervised 
open kind of maker lab study hall at school and school's open till seven o'clock at night, three days a week. And you can do your homework at school and there's tech at school, but maybe we don't send it home uh, because there are issues also with worrying that kids will be mugged for these devices or, you know, there are all kinds of issues that are very real. When a parent says, you know what, I don't really want my kid walking around with something that other people know costs $500. Well, that's real, right? That's a real safety issue. That is a legitimate concern in my community. Right. So I don't think a parent who raises that is wrong. Um, it, it, you know, so how, how are schools supposed to deal with that? If teachers feel like they need to lock down every single step in the classroom, I would wonder what they're doing pedagogically. Like, are they not using the device where the kids have to create something? If, if, they're, if they're expecting to kind of do a lecture from the front of the room and kids are just sitting there on iPads or Chromebooks kind of idly listening, I wouldn't be very surprised at all if kids go off task. And that's where I wonder if the device should be out at all or if there should be some creative activity expected on the device. Are the, could the kids be posting to a back channel? Could they be building a model in response to what they're hearing, right? So, I mean, I think the question is always, did these teachers get any professional development on how to integrate this into the, t- into the classroom? Is it being used just to show that they're using it or is it being used in some purposeful way? Um, and there's just a tremendous variety. I mean, I've been to school districts where I'm very, very, very impressed and where I think the technology is being used in a very thoughtful way and teachers are also very confident about putting it away and doing some activities, you know, unplugged. And I've been in other districts where I think it's it's newer, people are less certain, they've had less experience, less professional development. And there's a sense of like, oh, well, let's just kind of throw these iPads or Chromebooks at what we were doing before. And especially, you know, at the middle school level, but also in elementary or high school, that that's going to be, you know, things are going to happen. People are going to be distracted. If, if you just add Chromebooks to sit and lecture me instruction, it's not clear that that's an improvement. Sure. So, I mean, I guess on that topic, I mean, I think in the most innocuous cases, I've experienced this as an educator and I hear people that I work with say this, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily kids doing something malicious, but I mean, I've seen kids on Netflix, uh, watching sports, you know, waiting for a certain clothing or shoe to be released. I mean, are there classroom management strategies? I mean, you mentioned kind of making sure that the device is actually an active agent in the learning or in the lesson that's happening. But are there other classroom management strategies that you see work or that you advocate for uh, with your clients? Yeah, I mean, I really love Carl Hooker, who's a, an ed tech person who is a friend who talks about the two eyes, two feet app, right? Like walk around the classroom and see what students are doing. And if they're totally off task, ask them, you know, well, when did I lose you? Right? I mean, I have had students tell me, oh, I really like that the teacher can lock down my screen, which is so different than what I would have thought mm-hmm. um, and so different than what I would advocate for. But it's, it is it is really interesting that at schools where that's happening. But I would, I do wonder, is, is the tech being used in a skillful, thoughtful way in that case? You know, if the kids are able to go off task in, a, in an ongoing way, um, then it seems like there shouldn't be an opportunity to go as off task. And, and I know that some kids have more of that tendency. So if you have kids with neurological differences like ADHD or, you know, different mm-hmm. or differently wired, they might be more likely to sort of scroll and they might say, please lock down my screen. So I can't just absentmindedly scroll and distract myself. And I think that's a really valid ask, right? So if kids as part of an IEP or a differential structure need that support, I think we should give it to them and not make them feel bad about it at all. And, um, so that is really important. But again, I, I think the, the main support should be that the device is being used in an, in an active way to support learning or put it away. 
Mm-hmm. Like you shouldn't have time to see if a new sneaker has dropped because right. you should be like building a model or, or making something. You know, one of the things I think a lot about and I find myself advocating more and more with my clients is, um, you know, kind of having a sketchbook and these analog tools and going to the digital tool and then back to the analog tool. Do you feel like there's a certain ratio of time using something like pencils and sketchbooks versus digital tools that you recommend? Or does it really depend on what the student and teacher are doing? Of course, um, you know, sketchbooks are great. And I mean, my, my kid right now is um, building swords out of cardboard and having cardboard fights. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that even though Minecraft is building, I don't think it's as satisfying in the same in the same way or scratches the same itch as building a cardboard sword and making cardboard armor. But on the other hand, I think Minecraft is really great. I mean, I think there's a there's a role, in other words, for both of those kinds of play, and I think they they are related in terms mm-hmm. of the ways they involve collaboration and creativity, and they're both great. Um, but yeah, I would say, I mean, the, making physical stuff is really important and, and can be part of. Again, a school that has a makerspace, you know, it shouldn't all be about the 3D printer. I hope there's some crochet hooks and, you know, some X-Acto knives. And it, it has to be about just functioning physically in the world, right? And I mm-hmm. am not good at making physical things, but I can build a website. But I also appreciate living in a world where there are people who make physical things. Like we, we don't live in a totally virtual world. And my skill at making websites is nice. It's nice that I can, you know, mostly run Raising Digital Natives website, for example, and you know, help my partner with his website. But like, you know, and if the sink breaks, I'm going to really need to call somebody and that person's going to charge me a lot of money. And those skills are also worth something. So I would be thrilled if my kid was uh, skilled in, in both, right? I think we don't want to sort of discourage kids. And I, I think there's a huge move now in high schools towards now, again, going back to maybe we took away shop class a little too quickly, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, again, I would want my kid to have both. I want him to be able to code, but I also want him to be able to solve simple problems, even if it's with duct tape, right? I'm not saying he necessarily has to go become a master plumber or electrician if, you know, that's not his interest or woodworker, but just to be able to sort of function in the physical world. And I worry a little bit about today's kids that some, sometimes they've just never had an opportunity to like repair anything broken physically, mm-hmm. right? That they just have no, and, and, and again, even if it's duct tape, I'm like, I kind of want to see them just try to be like, okay, this thing is leaking that you built. Can you <laughs> try to solve the problem? Um, and there's, it seems like there should be opportunities for that. Sure. I mean, do you, so speaking of STEAM and STEM and makerspaces and engineering programs, do you find that with kind of the ubiquity or growing ubiquity of, of those programs, do you find that what people are doing in a digital format or on screens, is that becoming more, I mean, you know, I, I think we all say we want our kids to be producers, not consumers, but I would say that both are okay sometimes depending on the situation. But do you see schools and students doing more productive producing with screens with the rise of STEAM and STEM and makerspaces since you've I'm been doing sure this. I'm not sure because most kids I know don't have access to any of that. Like that's not mm-hmm. happening in my kids' school district. That's not really happening in most places, I would say. I mean, I think that it's more happening in extracurriculars that only some kids have access to, whether it's, you know, cardboard camp or whether it's, you know, summer camp in STEAM or other kinds of things. I don't see a really common, and I, I mean, I do work with a lot of independent and very, very wealthy public school districts. So I probably see more of it than your average person, but my own kids title one elementary school doesn't have any of that going on. And that's, I think more typical or very little, I should say there's not nothing, mm-hmm. um, but very, very little. Uh, so what can I say about this? I mean, I think that the exposure of kids to the fact that 
careers are changing and that we're not moving in a lockstep world where, you know, you apprentice a parent and then have that job or you go to school for a specific thing and always do that thing, that that's only going to be a reality for some people, right? I mean, I have Mm -hmm. a stepbrother who always wanted to be a doctor and is now a doctor. But I I have a kid who really wants to be a graphic novelist. And like, that's a real thing. And he might end up doing that. But I can also imagine a million other things that he might do with those interests and narrative and drawing and writing. And I just think we don't know. And some of those things don't exist now. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important for kids to, in some sense, have the tools that I got at art school, which is, you know, collaboration and research. And it's not so much about the skill set. It's not like nothing I learned in art school, whether it's how to use a high eight camera or how to use an Avid, like none of the technical skills would be relevant today. People would laugh at me. You know, the people who edit movies now, like none of those things are relevant. But the skills I got in organizing narrative and frankly, in just dealing with and withstanding critique and dealing with the fact that sometimes people don't understand your work and you have to make it better. Or sometimes people don't like your work and they're, and they're wrong and you're right and you have to just ignore them, right? And when, when are you going to make that choice to change or edit something based on feedback or stick with your convictions? That's, that's more important than the sort of technical skills. So I think we want to avoid as much as possible teaching kids, you know, a very defined set of skills and hoping that that will kind of prepare them for life. Uh, and, and instead teach them the capacity. Like it may be really great to learn a specific code language right now. And that may very well prepare you for a job right now, but, you know, ask anyone who programs in, you know, an old computer language, like how long that will last. And if, if you never learn a new thing, can you keep going? You know, um, so there's some universal things that, I mean, you touched on something that's such a huge issue that, you know, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEM and STEAM. And, you know, the higher socioeconomic brackets tend to have um, a lot of exposure to these tools and everyone else, it kind of seems to drop off. So it sounds like you're saying that the these are there's underlying principles of art, narrative, expression, design that can be taught basically with anything from cardboard to a 3D printer. Um, but those are really the things to focus on that might be more universal. Right, and and again, collaboration and you know, sort of responding to criticism and being in a process with other people and figuring out what the rules are going to be and the boundaries. I mean, all of that is so valuable. And then also just narrative. And I think this is where you were talking about sort of consuming versus creating. We want our kids also to consume and to consume really, really good art mm-hmm. um, and from really diverse creators, but really great stuff. And that is so important. And, you know, that could be TV. That could be really good games. Um, and that's, I, I think, and I think there is a difference right between watching a really great TV show and just watching whatever junk on YouTube, like watching, say, unboxing videos on YouTube to point, Mm -hmm. like, like my least favorite, you know, (laughs) other than, like, porn and beheadings for kids, right, which would be worse, but, like, unboxing is a pretty low form of, uh, of media to me, whereas if your kid is watching some great show, like Avatar, for example, Mm -hmm. I love, it's just a very different experience, and I think one of those things gives you such an opportunity to talk with your children about values about character about friendships about tough decisions and um all kinds of issues environmental conservation and the other one is like now your kid is whining for the thing they saw in the unboxing video (laughs) it's like a no win that's the logical ending of that video for sure i mean another orwellian kind of trend that 
I find kind of disturbing, but um, a lot of parents are installing like physical location tracking software on their kids' phones. Um, what is your take on that? Or, and how do you coach parents about that? Well, let's see. I mean, I understand the fear because we live in a fear-based society and I get why people want to track their kids' location. Um, some people even say it fosters independence. I get very creeped out when people are doing it into college. You know, I've had parents tell me they're still tracking their kid to see if they're going to class. Like they're watching the little dot and looking at the map of campus and seeing if their kid's leaving the dorm. Um, mm-hmm. Now the kid could obviously leave their phone, assuming the tracking isn't in their ankle and, you know, go to class without their phone. But that's a little creepy. I mean, sorry, I would say, you know, at what point are you planning to stop? And also, unfortunately... In many cases, if your kid is vulnerable, it's not because of their location, right? Like, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of parents, I mean, again, I taught college for years, and, you know, in some sense, your kid is the most vulnerable on campus if they're they're drunk past the point of being able to make good decisions, Mm -hmm. right? It's not necessarily, I mean, I know there was just this horrible um, murder in New York City, but it's not necessarily, like, leaving and going into the city or, you know, in general, college students can be very vulnerable in their own room. Uh, and so the idea that you can control the outcome for your child by knowing their location, I think is, is a wishful, is a wishful belief on parents' part. And I, I, I say this, you know, knowing how tough it is for parents to let their kids take transportation independently, walk around independently. We just live in this age where we haven't been encouraged to be really fearful. Uh, and I really appreciate, you know, the author of Free Range Kids and some other people have kind of pushed back on that culture of fear and said, we, we need to actually push for communities where kids can walk home. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really difficult. And it's, I think as parents, we sometimes overestimate our own power to keep our kids safe. Uh, yeah. Just knowing the location doesn't give us any like agency and like, you know, helping them if something were to happen wherever they are. Um, one, another thing I was, I was curious about what you thought about was, you know, wait until eighth, that movement has g- gotten a lot of steam. And, uh, what do you think about that concept of, of waiting till this, this time in, you know, eighth grade, 13 or 14 years old to give your kid a phone? Um, well, I, I, mean, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of funny cause eighth grade is like a low point for a lot of people in terms of judgment, like really lifelong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say in some ways, like a group of 10 year olds might make better decisions than a group of 14 year olds. So, mm-hmm. you know, do we think of eighth grade as this pinnacle of judgment? Like, great. It wasn't for me. Um, and it mm-hmm. isn't for most kids I've met. <laughs> so I'm not sure why eighth grade, but I mean, I do know why, right? They sort of think it's, you know, the last chance before high school to get some practice. And while parents still have more influence maybe than in high school. So I get where they're coming from with eighth, but, but truly a, a low point of judgment for many, many kids. Um, I think every family has to do what's right for them. There are certainly a lot of apps that technically aren't supposed to be used by kids under 13. And some of those apps are starting to enforce that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, Instagram, for example. Sure. So maybe maybe a phone that doesn't have all, all the capabilities or doesn't have all the apps might be more appropriate for a younger kid. Um, I think it's really important not to tell other families what to do. That, that said, it's tough to raise your kid in an environment where all the kids are super networked and your kid isn't part of that or not part of the group text. And so I think for parents who want to delay, I think that's an understandable reason why they want to push other families to delay. And there are a lot of downsides that can come with that first phone. I mean, a lot of people feel like it reduces sibling interaction, especially if there's a younger sibling that doesn't have a device. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kids may, may well be very distracted. Um, They may spend a lot of time on the device, especially if, 
expectations and family culture hasn't been very clear about where the device is going to fit. If you just hand over the device, I wouldn't expect it to go that well, right? I mean, I definitely think these are very powerful communication devices. So whether you're giving it to a sixth grader, an eighth grader, or a tenth grader, it's you still need to have a lot of planning and conversation. So that's... That's what I have to say about wait until 8th. I mean, that that and a lot of times families are like, I'm waiting until 8th, but they got their kid a, an iPad in third grade that does all the sure. things that a phone does. And that's the other thing I would ask is like, in that case, if your kid has an iPad in third grade and you're like, I'm waiting till 8th, like, what do you think your child has been doing with that iPad? The only difference is now they'll be able to use it in places that don't have Wi-Fi. But for a lot of people, that's not a huge difference. So it boils down again to parent engagement, parents asking questions, being involved, listening to their kids. And and even though I think a lot of parents, and I think this is maybe a, something, a generational thing that will kind of age out over time, a lot of parents kind of throw their hands up and say, you know, I don't really get this stuff, but Tommy or Cindy or whoever is such, you know, a, a, they're so good with tech that they get this. But I mean, parents need to be aware that that iPad, it can be on Wi-Fi and can access the internet in the same way that the phone would in eighth grade. Yeah, I think we should not get too smug about what we're doing versus what other parents are doing. And again, I mean, the, the whole sort of wait until eighth thing, if, you're, if your kid is texting on her iPad in fourth grade and has email and potentially social accounts and a YouTube channel, it's not clear like what you're waiting for. If you truly have kept your kid offline and they haven't played video games online with anybody and they don't have an email account, and you're waiting till eighth for a phone, then you really need to be prepared to do a lot of mentoring in eighth grade as well. So mm-hmm. kids could be FaceTiming on their school Chromebook right now while you're like smugly meeting with some other parents talking about how you're going to wait till eighth. And it's like, well, then what are you waiting for? And so I think it's more important to know what your kid's actually doing. And by the way, they could be FaceTiming to talk about math homework. They could also be mm-hmm. completely up to no good or, you know, bad talking some other kid or whatever, but it could be just fine. And so that's what you just also want to know is like, what does my kid want to communicate for? Do they want to text so that they can be part of a really annoying group text that they will regret? Do they want to text because everyone else is doing it? Do they want to text because they have a very specific friend that they want to talk to once a week about their favorite show? And those are things that you can potentially accommodate as a parent if you know. But it, I think it's really dangerous to assume, but I think a lot of a lot of us assume that we know what kids want without really diving in and without really asking them. So it's, it, it's, always, it's always good to talk to kids, even if you're very committed to a specific course of action, like my kid will not have social media until time certain. I would still have the conversation with kids um, to find out what it is that they want because you might be also pleasantly surprised that they have a very specific and really, really great use in mind that you wouldn't have thought of because maybe that's not how you use tech. So, I mean, that being said, are there any tools, sites, um, apps that you think schools and parents should just ban outright or kind of watch out for? And I know that's like an ever-evolving um, yeah, situation. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously tons of content on YouTube that's, you know, reprehensible and awful and, you know... Um, there have been some sort of scary articles about how white supremacists want to recruit your child. Um, I mean, they do, right? Like, they mm-hmm. do. And and I'm not saying that it's, most kids are probably not super vulnerable to recruitment. And uh, But, you know, I mean, there, there, there was that scary article in The Washingtonian about that young man who was a bit recruited to the sort of alt-right and what that looked like. And um, they were a Jewish family. So it was, like, hard to even understand how with that identity in mind, this kid could get kind of soft recruited by Nazis. So 
I wouldn't say that that's a typical experience, but it's not such an outlying experience that you don't want to talk to your kids about certain words that people use, or if they have a YouTuber they really follow, yeah, you probably want to know who that YouTuber is and what they stand for outside of being funny, because humor can be code for a lot of different things and can cover up a lot of different things. So Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to understand the content and, and YouTube certainly is a much wider range of possibilities than the broadcast world exists. You know, when we were kids in the 1970s, and this is, I can tell you, as a television historian, when the Archie Bunker show wanted to have an off-screen toilet flush, there was a meeting and they fought about it and they got it, right? But they were the, the standards of decency were such that there was like a big fight about whether you could hear a kid or somebody flushing off-screen, mm-hmm. Right imagine if that's the most gross thing your kid could experience in media. I mean, you would be crying tears of joy that, you know, like, oh my goodness, my kid could hear a, an off-screen toilet flush, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the, we don't live in that world. That we don't live in that world. We live in a world where people are, you know, beheading journalists and putting it on YouTube. And that's, that's something your kid could find. Um, and it's terrifying. Some of it, is, uh, I mean, I've, there's so many situations where, people are purposely making these videos targeted to children. And at some point it cuts to something horrible, horrific, um, whether it's recruitment or whether it's just to shock or traumatize kids. Um, so I think it's, it's not just that there's content that's questionable. It's like there's contents that's designed to exactly. traumatize, to lure children in and traumatize and, and, them. And now we know, I mean, again, I'm, I mean, you know, I feel like I've become a little bit more wary and conservative. I was such the like rose colored glasses, like everything is wonderful. The internet is so amazing. And I still believe all of that, but I, I, I will say these last couple of years with the revelations, especially about also how so many families shared these innocent family videos and photographs of children and they were reused for pornography and shared, you know, in the sort of dark web by pedophiles. It's, it's very disheartening and it, it, it's understandable that people are afraid knowing that that's happening. And I do think the companies like Google and Facebook, you know, that have so much market share and have so much of our data do need to work harder to figure out their role in dissemination, right? So, I mean, that's a that's a, a bigger question. And I think, again, for most of the kinds of content kids will be drawn to, some of it may seem objectionable, but is actually kind of just like poor taste, right? Like your 13-year-old likes different music than you, or your 13-year-old thinks, you know, videos of squirrels falling off of stuff are hysterical and you don't think they're that funny. I mean, I think we have to really pick our battles. And to me, anything hateful, anything violent, anything pornographic is in a really different category than something that I just might think of like as a time waster. Like a lot of parents really can't stand their kids watching gaming videos. Right. And I think it's fine to say, I don't want you watching 10 hours a day of gaming videos. But I think if your kid's seriously committed to a game and they, you know, if your kid was really into baseball, would you let them watch a baseball game? How much time would you let them watch a baseball game? If your kid's really into Minecraft, it might make sense for them to watch other Minecrafters. On the other hand, if your kid's seriously into baseball, you probably wouldn't let them stay up all night every night watching baseball, right? And so I would look at, you know, things like watching video games as maybe a generational difference. But what I love, and Carl Hooker actually does this with his own kids, is he makes them show what they've learned. So, okay, I, I see you've watched this Minecraft video. What did you show me in the game what you learned? Right. So I can see that you're really getting something out of this. And it's not just this kind of mindless viewing because I don't want you to just zone out and watch other kids play. I would rather that you play the game, you know, with most of your game time. 
And I think most kids, if they have a certain amount of game time, and a lot of families uh, moderate their kids' gaming in that way, you know, if say you have 12 hours a week to game, you're probably not going to want to spend nine of it watching other people. Um, but sure. again, I think like gameplay videos are more of a taste issue, right? Assuming that the kid doesn't have, you know, a sort of a harmful level of, of commitment to that content, whereas there are other things that are less of a taste issue and more of a, of a safety issue. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to let you get recruited. So sorry, we're, you're not watching that YouTuber. Um, and, and I think YouTube just presents parents and educators with a very tough set of issues. A lot of educators are using YouTube and some parents don't like that because kids can watch the sort of the next video, right? And it's very hard to predict what that might be given the algorithm. I mean, going back to the streaming of games, I, I recently was talking to a group of parents kind of casually and uh, some of the parents were kind of lamenting their child's desire to watch um, Twitch, you know, people stream games on Twitch. And, you know, I said to them, I mean, you know, how is that different than ESPN? And just the realization that that might be their kids ESPN and sports, you know, basketball, football, things like that, that I think they hadn't really drawn the comparison to it. Um, but esports are such a huge and growing thing now um, that, you know, they probably will have to at some point put that at the same level as the major sports. Oh, yeah, I think it's, it's and it's, it's a huge industry. It's super interesting to me. Absolutely. And uh, so earlier, you mentioned you alluded to a new project you have. So I was wondering if you if it's something you can talk about, or are you willing to talk about it? Yeah, I'm working on a project about reputation. And my concern has long been that kids are being constrained as they grow up in the digital age by sort of an overfocus and worry about reputation. And, you know, almost every talk I give to parents, someone will pull me aside and say, you know, well, do you know, it's, it's, it's like toothpaste, you can't put it back in the tube, or, you know, something like this. And the people are very concerned that their kids will kind of pollute their digital reputation, or they'll have one, you know, mistake. And, and when kids do make more serious mistakes, and they're kind of publicly excoriated, like the kids who were rescinded from Harvard, right, for those memes, uh, mm -hmm. parents really worry that someone will scour their own kids record and find some, you know, thoughtless post or something that they've done and, and, and find a way to kind of make them pay and pay. And I think there's, a, there's a number of questions about that, that I've had for a long time about, first of all, you know, sh how accountable should we hold young people? Should we be more like Europe with the right to be forgotten? And should we kind of wipe the slate clean at a certain point for young people? And is that something we could consider doing as a society? But also what are the realistic concerns? You know, I mean, you, and I talked about, your kids applying to selective enrollment high schools in Chicago. Are high schools looking at kids? What about independent high schools? What about colleges? How real is that concern when parents threaten their kids and say you'll never be able to go to Princeton or, you know, University of Michigan with, you know, that post? Is that really true? What if the post is a sixth grade post? Is it different if it's a junior year post in high school, mm -hmm. right? Um, how bad does it have to be? You know, if, if kids with silly selfies weren't getting into Princeton, I can tell you the campus would not have a lot of kids walking around, right? And, sure. and so clearly the, the middle school silly selfie is not keeping kids out of Princeton. Um, if uh, ever using bad language was, you know, I mean, I'm, I live in Evanston near Northwestern. If, if bad language kept kids out of Northwestern, I don't think there would be very many students at Northwestern, right? I don't think there sure. are that many students at, at Northwestern who've never used a bad word. Right. And potentially even used a bad word in a text message um, that would certainly uh, thin the herd. Right. So I think it's really important for parents to be realistic about your kid used a bad word in a group text with three friends. 
that probably doesn't mean they can't go to the college of their dreams, assuming they have other <laughs> criteria that they meet. Whereas, you know, yeah, if your kid is part of something very scandalous, uh, something very public, that might influence their near-term opportunities. Um, should they be able to ever recover? I would certainly hope we can create a society where you know, a 17-year-old can do something thoughtless and move forward and um, have a kind of a mea culpa and learn from their mistakes and move on. I, I would like to not live in a society that would enjoy making that 17-year-old sort of pay and pay for decades. So it's kind of like, uh, I feel like, you know, people our age uh, heard about our permanent record, which was this possibly fictitious, nebulous thing that was kind of used as a cudgel against us um, for any infraction we might do. I mean, do you see this as just kind of an amplification of that that threat and that kind of something hanging over our heads that we... Yeah, and that's, it's funny. That's actually my working title is uh, your permanent record growing up in public. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the idea of, you know, this is it. And, and, and the fact that that threat is being leveled against, you know, 10-year-olds, against 15-year-olds, is just really unfair. And it's not that I want to live in a world, and I want to be really clear on this, where we don't hold kids in any way accountable for their behavior. It's not mm-hmm. that if my kid was mean to your kid in a group text or something, that I wouldn't want to hold him accountable. But it would be to the same degree in that situation as if they were mean on the playground. Like, I don't think we also want to elevate the digital just because we have the evidence just because you might have the screenshot and maybe the playground incident wouldn't be documented in the same way, doesn't really necessarily always make it worse. And it doesn't, it shouldn't make it harder to move past. And I think developmentally, we have to help kids move through and past and also take the opportunity of having a reputation as an opportunity, but not push kids to be these resume polishers either that, you Mm -hmm. know, I think sometimes digital citizenship you know, some of I have colleagues in digital citizenship that are all about having kids sort of create these awesome digital portfolios and resumes. And I'm like, that's great if you want that. But if you're really private as a 16 year old and you want to post Harry Potter fan fiction under another name and you don't want to be well known and you want to keep your, you know, day to day life kind of separate and you only want to be like friends with five people on Insta and like maybe have a small group chat and you don't want to be super famous and you don't want to be resume polishing, I think that's fine. Sure. Right. I don't think you have to be famous to be awesome. And I think it's really important that we don't push kids to be more public than they're ready for or to be to feel like they have to fix and perfect and hone their identities at an age when they should be experimenting and asking questions and feel very free to change and grow. And I think that's really important. That, and, and that's one of the very painful things about having such a strong digital footprint. It's one of the reasons I think parents need to work hard to make sure they're asking kids permission before they post about their kids. So um, in this reputation book, I have a chapter about, you know, sharenting, which is a new word. Um, Mm -hmm. It's something I've been talking about for a long time, as well as chapters about privacy and how when our kids turn 18, they are entitled to um, both HIPAA and FERPA privacy. And uh, as a college professor, I found a lot of parents quite astounded that they no longer had access to their kids' grades and medical records. And I think families need to be preparing for that transition and kids need to be, young people need to be thinking about what the opportunity is um, for them to, to take that responsibility and what, what skills they need and what they need to feel ready for. Sure. I think that, that some of the, the interesting thing of things about this new project, um, when I think about technologies like deepfakes, like the ability to generate a very convincing video or picture um, depicting someone doing something 
that never happened that was not actually them. I think that kind of throws, I mean, certainly uh, what it's going to do to um, news and fake news and, you know, how we perceive truth. There's huge implications there, but I think what you're talking about, I mean, especially when those tools become so easy to use that, you know, junior high, high school kids can, can take pictures of their classmates and, you know, make something very convincing with them that kind of throws a whole other um, kind of aspect of this into the mix. Absolutely. And we already know that there are times that pictures circulate without the subject's consent or even sometimes knowledge. And so, and yeah, deep fake just even adds an, another level. I think it's really terrifying. And, and frankly, kids trust in news, I think in these last few years is at an all time low. And as an old school media literacy person, I find that terrifying. I mean, I believe that we have to have some news that we can trust. And, and I still do trust and, and respect and, and believe media outlets, not that they obviously never make mistakes, but I think there's some really good reporting and journalism out there. So, I mean, another thing that I think is a great opportunity for kids in the digital age to understand a higher bar for truth is to actually be a student journalist. And I think journalism teachers in high schools and middle schools in the United States are doing incredible work in terms of digital citizenship by teaching if, if they're doing this, right, where kids are getting this good mentorship is, yeah, what, what can we publish? And you know what, let's just not publish every rumor we hear or every story mm-hmm. that occurs to us or everything that someone brings us. We need to go out and fact check that thing. And, and in this day and age, when any one of us can get on Twitter and, you know, I mean, I only have whatever, five or 6,000 followers or something on Twitter. I'm not hugely influential there, but you know, so that's, that's like 5,000 people that I can just speak to. I can just say whatever I want, but I, I'm just very sensitive to what, what young people can learn from being in that newspaper office and saying, I want to do a story about, you know, our school lunches, or I want to do a story about hiring the new superintendent. It's like, okay, well, what's the bar for, for this story, right? We can't just go and report just on one thing that one person says. And I think confusing social media for journalism is, is a problem. It's, Certainly. It's, anyway, I don't want to derail us on that. But yeah, so I'm writing about reputation. It's going to be fun. I have many, many thoughts. And I've gotten to interview some really cool people, including like some college admissions officers. And, um, you know, I can... I don't think it's too much of a spoiler alert to say that most college admissions officers are not doing a deep scour on most applicants' social media. Sure. I think, I mean, a lot of them are, are considering whether to even ask for the SAT and the ACT. So um, I think even a lot of college admissions is being reconsidered right now in a positive way. So that's great to hear. Yeah, I think unless in, unless you have real reason to worry, I mean, unless they're deeply on the fence about someone maybe who has been involved in something that is a discipline issue, you know, like you've disclosed a suspension or an expulsion. But I think for the average applicant, you know, and even to very competitive schools, like they're not looking to add to their time either. You know, who has time? They're already reading all your essays. They don't have time to go find you on Instagram and see if you have a Finsta. Um, So the reason not to be a jerk on social media is to not be a jerk. It's not so that you can't, you know, go to University of Michigan or University of Illinois or Harvard or whatever. The reason is to not be a jerk. And I think that's so important to communicate to kids that it's not about some external body that will judge you. It's because you want to be a good person. Uh, And that, I think that message can get lost sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Well, Devorah, I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time, and it's been great. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. Special thanks to Devorah Heitner and Raising Digital Natives. 
If you like this episode or any others, please consider telling a friend about the show and leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we're always interested in show ideas or general feedback, so feel free to reach out to us at info at depthandlight.com.